they takes a, their cigarettes and walks away and I picks the £10 note up and it was a photocopy of a £10 <laughs> note. I shit you not, it gets even better. I turns it over and it says, ha ha, you clown, written in the back of it. <laughs> Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and my guest is Rihanna Bell. Rihanna is the owner of two aesthetics clinics in Ayrshire, both called Clinic 22. She's currently a very successful business owner with all the outward signs of success, but her journey was far from a simple one. We talk about Rihanna's upbringing in the town of Kilmarnock and the issues of deprivation, addiction and community that exist in the area that she comes from. Rihanna opens up in great detail about how she found herself homeless with two very young children and debt collectors close behind before taking a serious risk in order to improve her financial situation. You'll hear all about her plans to revolutionise the aesthetics industry and how she intends to help other people into the world of business who would ordinarily be locked out. And most of all, you'll hear the type of story that I love best. Somebody you might not know but will relate to in so many ways. Hers is a multi-layered journey with challenges, setbacks, risks and victories and one that will leave you feeling inspired. Once you've listened, go and check out Clinic 22 on Instagram and Facebook and see for yourself what they have on offer. All new customers will receive 10% off the first treatment with the code BLEATHERED10. Enjoy! I was saying on the way down where I passed the the court in Kilmarnock, the scene of the if anybody's seen the scheme where the woman comes out quite tearful and says, the guy says he called them all the Bin Laden bastards and they crashed the car. I was like, no way. It's kind of like, must be what it's like going through like New York or Hollywood and seeing somewhere you recognise in a film. Well, we do have our landmarks in Kilmarnock. <laughs> what, what was Kilmarnock like to grow up in? Because it's not far from Glasgow. It's obviously my reference point, but it's worlds apart at times as well. Kilmarnock gets a pretty bad rap at times, but there's a real sense of community. Um, everyone looks out for each other and there's a real caring aspect. If there's ever, you'll see, if there's ever charity fundraisers or, you know, if there's a kid that needs to go to another country for treatment, you know, they'll raise a quarter of a million pounds in a couple of weeks. They look after each other. It does, obviously, there's a lot of deprivation in Kilmarnock which comes with its own issues. Um, but there is a real sense of community, which I like. I really, I love Kilmarnock. What did you think about the scheme? For anybody, just a quick history lesson, if you're unaware, the scheme was a four-part series in the BBC back in 2010, and it catapulted people to fame, or as infamy is probably a better word. And uh, at the time, let's be honest, a lot of us laughed at it. Because it was funny, a lot of lines were kind of comical, they were unintentionally hilarious. But over the passage of time you go, fucking hell, that was really out of order. That was poverty safari. I mean, how did you perceive it at the time? I do feel like there was a bit of exploitation, I suppose. Yeah. But also it is a true representation of what happens in a lot of schemes, not just in Kilmarnock, but this is how people live. And a lot of people are shielded from it or completely unaware of it. So as much as a lot of it seemed like a comedy sketch and people maybe thought it was dramatised and surely that doesn't happen, mm-hmm. this is how people live. My memory, like the first two episodes were all like 
the 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 sort of bedding music was so you're going oh this is a wee light-hearted sort of look into the lives of others the second two episodes actually didn't air for months because there was an ongoing criminal case yeah and footage would have jeopardized or prejudiced the trial yeah and i remember everybody being desperate for it to restart but the second two episodes you're like whoa this is really dark i think as well some of the people who were portrayed as the main characters and even some of the people who maybe just appeared in it were probably going through some of the toughest times in their lives oh. and facing challenges, yeah. which is now recorded and being played out to the world and mm. is there for MD to see. So they're constantly faced with times that they're maybe not proud of. Yeah. Um, but it was also an eye-opener to the rest of the world. Not the world, I suppose. That sounds a bit dramatic, but... This well, within Scotland live. anyway. Yeah, this is how people live. And there are some major social issues that get ignored. Yeah. Especially in these schemes in areas like Kilmarnock. I feel like, God, wow, that was 14 years ago. It's just that flying, is isn't actually it? frightening, isn't it? That was 14 years ago. I mean, that can't be possible because, I mean, I'm sure I'm still only 18. Oh, so I'm, I, I yeah. must have been four when I know, I'm, I'm 22. Actually, I was even born when that was it. Um, I'm I actually um, went to school with quite a few of the people in the yeah. scheme. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't. I, you know, I don't want to be unfair to them or anything. What, 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 what do you remember about? Um, a lot of these people, they just had maybe rough, tough upbringings. Uh-huh. Um, it's just generations, isn't it? Generations of people who have been brought up in poverty, yeah. who haven't had parenting skills, not known how to parent, or not had the actual capacity to parent. Um. These people were genuine people who had hearts of goals, have just been put in shitty circumstances mm-hmm. and have went into survival mode. Some people absolutely made wrong decisions. But you tell me one child that you've ever met in your life that you've asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or oh, I want to be a heroin addict. No one wants that as their future. It's it's, it's circumstances. Uh, yeah, no, I completely agree. It's, I suppose it's, it's people living through trauma and I don't want to say bad parenting, let's just say parenting where it's not getting it right or not ticking enough boxes and they're then dealing with their own shit and then their kids come along and it's kind of passing down we all, certain issues. Every single person on this planet has had some sort of trauma. Yeah. You'll not find a single person in this world who's not experienced some form of trauma. But do we ever get taught as children? Do we ever get taught at school how to deal with trauma? How mm. to process these things? We don't. So it's people filled with trauma, trying to parent children. They're in deprivation. They're working multiple jobs to try and support families or, you know, sometimes unemployed, which comes with its own issues. They're trying to parent to the best of their abilities or they are suffering with their own depression, anxiety, etc. Trauma after trauma after trauma, generation after generation after generation. Kids aren't being given the toolkits to deal with these things, which just it's just a vicious cycle, mm. really vicious cycle. What are the differences between people? Let's just say you have, let's take two people, person one and person two, and they have similar, not identical, but similar issues and backgrounds and and traumatic experiences and so on. Do you think there's something that separates? person one might go on and do spectacularly well from a material perspective and there might be somebody else that doesn't like what's what's the difference so 
My background, I was brought up in a place called Shortleys. We used to joke they would have recorded the scheme there, but their cameras would probably get stolen. <laughs> Honestly, it was Shortleys, it's, it's filled with deprivation and that's where I was brought up. I worked in the local corner shop from the age of 13. I was very, very much immersed in that community. Why did you work there for 13? Because that's, you, you tell that, right? That comes off the bat to you as if, well, that's just what happened. There'll be a lot of other people that will go, what if, is that not against the fucking law? And also, <laughs> why? We've got our own set of laws down in Shortlands. <laughs> but no, actually, my first job was at the age of 12. Um, and there was a local paper shop. And I used to go round before school in the mornings delivering the papers. And I had a wee, I'm, I'm tiny, and I was... Honestly, I must have been about the size of a six-year-old. Sometimes my mum or dad would drag me around and then sometimes I'd have to just cart this wee trolley about. Um, so the job in the corner shop was actually an upgrade for me. Um, but I just remember I always had this drive to work and to make money. But also I was from a working class family. My mum and dad, we didn't have much. And if I wanted to go to the fun swim at the weekends with my friends, if I wanted to do these things... I had to make money to do it. Mm -hmm. um, my mum and dad couldn't just dish out money, like much like a lot of people. Um, I know this isn't unique to me, but if I wanted money, I had to work for it. And I remember my first wage, it was, I'll get two pounds an hour. And I used to do two and a half hours twice a week. And that'd be my tenor for the week. That was my, <laughs> my carry out money or my fun swim money. <laughs> At what age? Oh God. I don't want to be giving away my secrets here. My mum will be on the phone to me later. But um, I think I remember for probably the age of 13 or 14, it was just absolutely normal within our friend group to go down the park with uh, a carry-out. It was in mine as well. I never drank. I actually didn't really start drinking until I was about 17, 18. I never drank in the street or anything. I was always playing football and all that, but my pals would be there not playing football but boozing. And it does kind of makes you, you grow up quickly. See, when I think back, do you know what it is that astounds me? Like, if, even if my heating's not on in the, on in the house, I am Baltic. Mm. We were out in December. Oh, I know. Minus temperatures. We were huddled up like wee penguins, swigging our Lambrini, and we were fine with that. I now know. I think I would genuinely die of hypothermia. Talk to me about your growing up then, because being in, in that area, and a sense, yeah. I, I always sort of anticipate there'll be a sense of reluctance in, in people's part to... To be particularly honest, because you don't want to, you don't want your parents to hear it and, and feel bad or whatever. Yeah. But I mean, what was it like? And I also don't want to offend people, but I know that people from Shortleys and people from Comarnock, this is our reality. Mm -hmm. I remember the shop was called Dominic's. It was an Italian guy. Um, it was funny, and everyone in Shortleys knew Dominic. He had so many businesses within Comarnock, but the guy was an absolute grafter. You know. And his wee old dad worked in the shop as well. Um, and, you know, I would go in there at half six in the morning to start my shift and they'd already been in there. You, they were absolute grafters. Um, but that gave me so much experience of... I had families coming in who they couldn't afford to buy bread or milk. Mm. You know, this was their reality. Their kids, you know, I hope Dominic doesn't listen to this, but I'd sneak them like little you know, the little penny mixture bags you used to yeah. get. And they were just, but they were such a warm community. If you were from Shortleys, that you were part of that community. That was just our reality. That was really normal. Um, Shoplifters taking orders for what you wanted them to steal out. The sh that was normal. That's how people lived there. Yeah. And it, it still is. Um, 
there just is so much deprivation. But think about it, these people, a lot of the time, they can't afford to drive or have, you know, cars and pay for insurance, all these sort of things. So they're limited travel-wise. Um, food shopping is much more expensive out of your local corner shops and yeah. your co-ops and things than it is to go to a supermarket. Look at Asda and Kilmarnock, it's quite a trek. So it's it's really, it's, it's a vicious circle. Mm. But it was a tough place growing up as in I used to walk to my work and if there was a group of girls or a big group of kind of guys, you'd cross the road because you were always unsure if anything was going to kick off. You regularly saw people getting kickings. Mm. Um, there was actually um, a murder that happened just after I finished my work one day and I ended up having to be, you know, having to go to the police and things and be interviewed about all that. So these were normal for me growing up. And that that's a baseline of chaos. Like you, your normality is chaos. You know, you talk about people in later life when they gravitate towards really volatile relationships and stuff and you can often pick a lot of it back to your baseline being utter chaos, that that's kind of what you seek as normality. Yeah, but when you're brought up in that... Mm and that's your normal and everyone around you has the same life you just accept that that's life you know that's I, what it is. I was from when you said you were from Shortleys people would you know that was the place that people would tell their kids you're not you're not going out with her if these are going to Shortleys or I don't want to find out you've been down there you know people from more affluent areas didn't want their kids coming to Shortleys you were yeah. straight away you're tarred and you've got limits put on you mm before anyone even knows who you are because of the area that you come from. People assume that you're not going to achieve much because you're from this area. And I talk about short leaves, but this is a pattern that's, you know, prevalent throughout schemes in the full of Scotland. They're just kind of forgotten areas that people are just sent to just continue their life cycle. And it's when when you're in that sort of environment, it is tough to, not to break, I don't even want to say to break out, because that then implies that it's a bad place to be. I don't mean that, but it's I think... It's tough to envision that you can have a different life because yeah. you're brought up thinking that, oh, well, that's just what you do. That's how that's how people like us live. Aye. It can become very difficult to sort of exceed the limitations that have been set upon you by others. But say you mentioned having jobs, like my first job, it's a job, but I did do it every week for about eight years. So when I was about 11, maybe, 10 or 11, I started... Uh, collecting window cleaning money yeah. out in Kirk and Tillock, so I'm for Rob Royston, so it's like a 15-minute drive away. It's not far away at all. And we would do, quote-unquote, I, I feel terrible saying this, but poorer areas mm-hmm. and the richer areas. Who and gave you better tips? The poorer areas. Exactly. Always, the, not only more generous of spirit and really warm and kind, and I'll, I sometimes, what I hope it has, I sometimes hope that that rubbed off on me at a young age because I remember feeling just a nice feeling there were some people I'd sit and talk to there would be Rangers fans that would wind me up because I was a Celtic supporter yeah. there would be the Celtic fans that would talk to me but the thing that was all in and that sounds quite close-minded but football is just so prevalent Yeah, and that's what we would talk about and they were always so lovely to me at Christmas you'd be, I, I honestly would sometimes make about 100 quid Yeah, I'd be running about for two hours you know, for door to door they, they would give me selection boxes, sweets, Easter eggs they would have for me, and they were so warm and welcoming. It's literally the door was open for you. And there's one that sticks in my head, and it's in 
people in Kirk and Tell it might know, it's called Columba Drive. Big nice houses, nice cars, the houses are all gardens are all nice. And the windows the whole house was two pound eighty. She gave me three quid. And I was like, oh I was kinda hinting for it, but subtly. But I said, um, off oh, I need to go and get your change, but he's about five streets away. If you get any do you have change a pound? As if to give me the eighty pence and she went, No, it's all right, I'll just wait. And made me run about five streets away to get twenty pence. Twenty P. I don't care if it, this was 20 years ago. It's like, and that to me always stuck in my head. I'm like, there you go. That's how you've got that much money. The people with, with little, I've always found are the ones most willing to share because they know what it feels like yeah, to not have much. I could literally ch- tap any door in Shortleys yeah. and say, listen, I'm really struggling. Have you um, got something I can put on for my kids' dinner tonight? And they would probably invite you in and cook the dinner for you. Aye. There was a real real sense of community. Steve McCrainer, right, he's the managing director of Frame PR Agency and he sent me a thing and it was called Hidden Rules Amongst Classes. And you've got lower class, let's say working class, the, the terminology is a wee bit off, but working class, middle class and wealthy. And it was like, what is most important to you or how they dealt with things? So I'll, I'll pick out a couple of them, right? So... For the working class money, it's to be used and it's to be spent and it's to be circulated. Whereas, let's say, for the middle class, it's to be managed, it's to be taken care of. And that's kind of like that. I was immediately thought of chapping the doors for the window money. The working class would be like, there you go, like sharing it. And we know what it's like to not have much or you, to have just the interview bit. Whereas the middle class, she's like, go and get my 20 pence. I felt like saying, I know what you can do with your fucking 20 pence, Dafty. <laughs> I tell you what, I'll just char- pick and mix anyway. I know, I'll charge you £2.60 next time, you idiot. I can honestly remember her face and she's like, I'll stand, she fucking stood at the door. Man, it's November. Just it's let en- me keep it. It's entitlement. It is, it's, you know. and I know. God, no, I'm just looking at a couple of other ones as well. Right, so destiny, how you perceive destiny, and collectively, and I can, this really resonated with me. The working class might believe just believe in fate. Oh, I can't really do much to mitigate this now. It's chance. You know, this is where I am. Whereas you've got the sort of middle class would be looking at it as well. You know, I can shape my own future, and that kind of all comes back to what is the environment you've been born into? What's the collective sort of mindset? And this is what I want to change. This is my absolute mission. Mm-hmm. Um, is I was I was told at school once, do you remember at school you go for that little interview when you're deciding what you're going to do with your life? Yeah, the career advisor. It's actually advisor. one of the most depressing things ever. I actually went to one of the school meetings recently and they pulled out, they put up in the projector and it was a chart of jobs that were going to be available when you were at a working age and it basically gave you a list of jobs like working in retail it was the most depressing like dreams go to die spreadsheet I've ever seen in my life yeah. but I remember going it was my guidance teacher and he was what I'd describe as you know middle class or whatever he um and I always just felt like he was oh, she's from Shortleys so anyway I goes for this meeting and I was really, really clever at school, never studied, but I was one of these people who just went in, tick, 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 and I, I was able to get good grades, probably part of my neurodiversity. I was able just to like absorb information. So I was I was on track to, to do well, yeah. and I goes into this meeting, and he says, right, what is it you want to do? And I said, I want to be a doctor. And he just looked at me, and he went, Rihanna, let's set some more achievable goals here let's be realistic 
he did a really good impersonation of his cunty eye roll as well people can't see that but i want to paint that picture for them and that has still stuck with me and i think genuinely so after that i'm not saying it was not his fault i was easily distracted you know i started boys boyfriends all these sort of things and i just kind of thought well what's the point so i left halfway through my hires um should have done much better than i did so i left school without the grades i should have got um and I always just thought, well, you know, I'm being too unrealistic. I'm setting my goals too high. This is just the life that I'm supposed to live. So just yeah. go on with it. And I very much believe that in these areas of deprivation or where people don't particularly have role models or their families have just done the same jobs and lived the same lives for so long, children now just think that, you know, that's just their life. That's fit. This is how it'll always be. See, like, you hear that often, don't you? Oh, you you'll hear, like, some millionaire and they take pure delight in saying, and sometimes people say it as a hard luck story, but they take delight in recounting how, oh, my career's advisor said I'd never amount to anything. My teacher's like, did you all have the same fucking teacher? <laughs> like, I actually don't believe you. But it does, it does happen. And it does. I always remember my mum saying to me, oh, she, oh, just always say this when I was younger, and that's probably how I've ended up becoming as, I don't know, as uh, sometimes head in the clouds as I am. But she would always be like, you could be anything, you can do anything. And you don't always believe that, but I think it builds, it puts a wee bit of something in you. See, I'm one of these people, if someone says, oh, I don't think you can do that, <sighs> I'm like, watch me. You, well, you get to about 16, you probably where are we because life life goes and it does go on a, a totally different track yeah yeah so 16 upgrades from dominic's to the pharmacy next door so i do a week's work experience with the school and the pharmacy huh. and then it was a wee independent pharmacy at the time and they keep me on so nice moves next door i get moved up to minimum wage which was nice <sighs> and my saturday job was um i worked in the pharmacy with the pharmacist and the dispenser and quite often you know, the Saturdays were spent just giving out methadone. So you can imagine in Shortleys, there was a lot of um, people on methadone. Some of the nicest, most genuine people I've met, again, just shitty circumstances yeah. that have led them. And that was really the kind of eye-opener for me that people don't choose these lives. They just get stuck in it and yeah. they don't have the tools to change their mindsets. I used to think this when I heard people say this when I was younger, but I wasn't able to organise and completely understand my own instinctive reaction or comprehension of it. Yeah. Now, what I mean by that is now, now when it, when I hear somebody say fucking junkies, fucking hate junkies, like that, all that part, of, yeah. your, your back gets right up and you're like, oh, I feel like my skin wants to crawl off my body, just listen to you. And, and now I kind of just go... You've very clearly lived, and good for you, a very sheltered yeah. um, sort of bubble life. But I think you you know nothing about the world. If yeah. that's if that's your take on it, you know nothing about life. It's it was sad because quite often they would come in with buggies with kids, yeah. and you can just see how the generational cycle is going to go. Um, which for me. It's really, really important and I'm proud of the fact that I come from a place like Shortleys yeah. because I feel like, obviously, we'll get to it, but I've, I've managed to make a success of it statistically. Yeah. I was a teenage mum. I was from an area of deprivation. I was a bit of a wild child at school. 
I shouldn't have been able to be a success. Mm-hmm. So if these kids can be like, right, well, that girl, that girl Rihanna came from here. She didn't have money. She didn't have anyone backing her. You know, she had what we've got and look what she's done. So I can do that too. Yeah, it's a a perfect example of, and I say this with my tongue in my cheek, but it's not where you're from, it's where you're at. Yeah, and it's, there's some hard truths, like some people want to live in the victim mindset they want to be like, poor wee me I didn't have this or I only had that or I came you know and kicking yourself out of that yeah. is it's hard do you know I think that really comes down to I everybody's got a sort of hard luck story everybody we've all had challenges and there's not, nothing's taken away for how difficult they were the thing I always kind of try and say to myself not to other people it's not my job to lecture other people or dictate to them I always think well Nobody's coming to save you. That's it. There is there is no night in a shine. Nobody's coming to save you. So cool. Yeah, you had your challenges, yeah. and that God, there there are things that could be really horrific that would take a lot more to overcome. And I'm not fucking diminishing that, and saying like, oh, so what? Go over it. It's more just a case of, aye, that's terrible. There are there are you can either you can stand still, you can go backwards, or you can even if it's just at a snail's pace. Every time, every time you overcome one of these challenges, it makes you more resilient and it reminds you the next time you're facing a challenge, well, I was fine that time, so I'll be absolutely fine this mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Do you know, you mentioning the, the methadone and stuff as well. It's something that I've discussed at length so many times and I convinced Jeremy Kyle of it. Um, and I've interviewed Paul Sweeney and Peter Crycant, two campaigners for basically drug reform in terms of yeah. decriminalisation and the whole point being there isn't anybody who woke up one day and went, do you know what? I think I'm going to fuck my shit up completely and yeah. just get hooked in heroin and there's always, a, or, or any other type of drug, there's always a root cause and, you know, why do people take drugs? It's essentially to escape reality. Yeah, they're trying to escape. They don't and, have the tools to deal with uh, the trauma. People could say, oh, that's an oversimplification. You know, there's far more. Maybe. There may be other facets of it, but at the for the vast bulk and majority you want to escape reality and yep. the only way I think then to overcome that is first of all stop criminalising them instead of sending them to prison for six months or 12 months for them just to repeat the cycle of addiction, offending, arrest, prosecution, conviction, imprisonment. It will never stop. Yep. Let's interrupt that. And you know the Scottish the Scottish government and the um, Lord Advocate, oh fuck, oh, what's her name again? Anyway, it used to be, was it Ailish, is it Ailish Angelini? Somebody's listening to this and going, mate, get to the fucking point. <laughs> they have actually, they've decriminalised it as much as is possible. You now get what's called diversion from prosecution. It's, hard, it's a hard one because this is where I'm a bit of a contradiction because you can't make people want to change. And until someone wants to change, you know, you can give them as much help and support as possible. Yeah, there's And that. also you've got the victims of, you know, people taking drugs, decriminalise fair enough but you've got a lot of what people do to get the money to take drugs or the people that are harmed in the way so you know victims yeah so the way the way the frame it's hard isn't it yeah i get what you're saying and the way the framework is set up does kind of circumvent those issues so basically the whole decriminalization doesn't just mean that the police will be like all right no worries crack on yeah it's given them for a start we'll look at the issues and how they're how they're resolved so you've got drug consumption spaces yeah 
where they can go and first of all it sees a, a reduction in deaths because you've not got people overdosing on their own you yeah. know lonely in a wee alley it takes people away from back alleys and stuff whether i've been to two funerals of girls that i was brought up with who died of drug overdose that's horrible yeah and that's that's terrible and, and these are their friends and their you know their family members their mothers their sisters their daughters and basically with the consumption rooms it's taking them taking people off the streets for a start and it's 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 drastically reducing deaths because we've got the fucking worst drugs deaths rate in western europe um so that's kind of from that point but then there's intervention of being like right here are actually access to services a lot of time people might not even know what their issue is and it's not to say that it's completely victimless and by the way see I think it was Russell Brand, who's maybe not a great person to reference right <laughs> at this point, but he made a fantastic point where he's like, drug addicts are a fucking nuisance. As a collective, he's like, they are a nu- of course they're a nuisance, because like, they're taken and taken, and they are, they can be, they can damage things. And it's like, but within that collective are a group of individuals with issues and, yeah. and problems, and what is needed is understanding and help. And see, at the very end of it, if somebody wants to, de- you can debate to a blue in the face, and people may have oppositional arguments that have got reason, and you're like, aye, fair enough. But then the point I reduce it to is like, well, it ain't fucking worked until now. Your approach hasn't worked up until this point, so it's time for a change. We Did- firefight in the UK, like with every aspect of health. You know, aye. we're firefighting. We're not looking at the root causes of things. We're not. We don't have the time or the the money there to treat them, yeah. and instead you know, they're firefighting, they're treating the symptoms, they're treating once it's gone too far, which ends up costing us much more in the long run. The way I break it down as well, is I think people look at it from two perspectives. You're either from a humanitarian, compassionate perspective, or you look at it from a fiscal perspective and you just care about pounds and pence and the taxpayers' yeah. money. Well, I'd say, well, from a humanitarian perspective, you're improving people's lives. You're helping to stop, one, that cycle from themselves, but to help stop them passing it on to their children and their yeah. children and their children. But see, if you don't give a shit about people, I find that really hard to get my head around. But from, from a fiscally conservative way, you're going to save billions of pounds. Fantastic. There you go. Billions of pounds saved in imprisonment and prosecution and the the continuation of supplying people with methadone and just this cycle. You've saved billions of pounds. So there you go. Should that not make you happy? And I find people then don't really have anywhere to go because I'm like... No, well I, well, I worked in the pharmacy for a good couple of years and I don't think at any point did we have a single um, drug addict who was able to come off the methadone pro- programme mm-hmm. for the entire time. Just putting them on there and just years placating and them. Years and years they were years. on it. There imagine was one you were guy, able, 10 years they'd been on it for. Imagine you were able to interrupt it and then the potential that these people may have. It just it requ- I think it requires a, a human compassionate um, approach. But controversial but then the pharmaceutical companies aren't going to make their money and the other oh boo know, fucking who sorry know, Pfizer or whoever yeah. yeah you know they can go they, they've made enough if we start looking at all that sort of aspects well they need to diversify drug addicts are the, you know the people Aye. make money off them I, no I, absolutely and um, there's something I'll be exploring as well but the decriminalisation of cannabis yeah. for for um, medicinal use and through a short spell I had working as a TV producer at Talk TV. I'm open to all other offers, by the way. I really enjoyed doing that. It just wasn't able to... I didn't want to stay down in London to do that. Um, but I encountered like a guy in from Belfast. The guy's name's Robin. And his wee girl was told, like, she's maybe one. They're like, I need to take her home to die. 
and they they basically got I can't remember. I don't I don't want to even try and guess at remembering the medical condition, and um, his world completely fell apart. And they eventually started trying sort of cannabis type therapy, and she's now this happy, thriving wee it's girl. Just insane. Even look at so the medication I take for my ADHD, lestexfetamine. It's effectively a legal form of of speeds. Class. Which that was I a can... joke. <laughs> I'll give you some and you'll be out. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, which legally is absolutely fine for me to take. Yeah. But there's actually quite a bit of research and evidence behind um, plant medicine being really good for ADHD. Mm-hmm. But that would be illegal for me to take that. That's mental, isn't it? Well, t- so two of the other people I ended up speaking to when, because we built up this segment on the decriminalisation mm-hmm. of cannabis. And uh, when I was talking to these two, the two, two of the foremost oncologists and um, cannabis or around that argument experts and I said to them I was like this isn't even as so much as part of the program I was like from on curiosity I was like jink it'll ever happen and he's like oh it's now not a case of when if if it's just a case of when and he's like if you're being like a pessimist you're probably talking 10 years if you're being a total optimist you're talking three years and I was like well why what are the reasons for it not happening and he's like Everybody always thinks it's a conspiracy to enslave the human race. And I always talk about this, right? But if you apply Occam's razor, which is basically just the principle of whatever is the simplest explanation that requires a few steps to get there is usually always the correct one. So in order to enslave the fucking global population by, no, don't give them any thingies, that requires a lot more convoluted thought and explanation. And he was saying, what it actually is, is like, I, they're medicinal companies are going no it's not going to make as much money and this is very profitable right now and people might go well that's like some bond villain shit and you're like yeah i i I appreciate that it seems like that but it really does come down to some guy who's responsible to shareholders and investors and he's like how do we monetize it and he's like we're going to lose money if we do that and you know it's a whole long fucking process may as well just not bother and that is kind of what's happening to this point i think now they're starting to realize oh we actually could make a lot of money off of this so we will actually go for it do you not think people are becoming more awakened to that sort of way of thinking though and people are starting to realize that corporations and finances run a lot more than what we think and Um, dictate a lot more of what we think i don't know i mean that's going down the right conspiratorial slant and while i i think there are credence to there's truth to grains of truth in those types of things but I think it comes down to this and something that you've said to me a few times and when you're working as a nurse that you'd said why are we doing this we will go because we've always done yeah. it this way and it really it comes down to that and it only it's only when there's collective pressure and it has been as a result of sustained collective pressure that governments go oh fuck's sake right okay we'll, we'll kind of we'll give in yeah. and I think it's very easy and it suits a lot of fucking let's call them what they are nut job arseholes on podcasts like this i may be an arsehole but i don't think i'm a nut job who will questionable per- yeah i know <laughs> who, but who will perpetuate these things because it gives them something to talk about and it, it causes a wee it's bit of debate yeah, yeah. then some other like-minded nut job arsehole will share it on, and this might upset people listening to this well tough shit deal with it but they will then see it in tiktok and go oh yeah that's right it's a fucking like joe biden and the lizards are trying to enslave us and like well the, the likelihood of that being true is actually limited but it's engaging and it's fun and you get involved in it and it makes makes these people advertising people, revenue people often get opinions and facts mixed up oh people absolutely their opinion isn't actually a fact i know and i mean it, you've had the british government and, and tory cabinet very recently over the last 10 years going like you know what the british public are tired of experts 
Are we? <laughs> Are we? Yeah, okay, hold on. So I'll just listen to somebody on fucking TikTok. Like, fuck off. Anyway, wow, I have taken this on a mad tangent. We'll digress, but you're working in the... But I like these. I like when these conversations kind of come up. Let me you're... tell you, I've got a couple of funny stories from my days working Pharmacy. in the shops. Um, Dominic's was more entertaining. So, right, picture the scene. I'm literally like 13 years old and I'm the height of shite. <laughs> and I goes in for my first day and there was like bottles of Blue Wicked <laughs> lined up behind me like little bottles bearing in mind I'm not legally supposed to be selling alcohol I hope like hopefully like they can't charge you after a certain statute time. of limitations ages ago it was ages ago um, and Dominic actually says to me, this, for, the, for the purposes of anybody any grasses are listening this is all a joke this is all made up um, made up so Big Dom says to me those bottles behind you are there for a reason he says, if someone comes in and tries to rob you, you pick up one of them and you hit them across the head. Make sure you do it hard because you'll only have one shot. <laughs> and then there's like a wee alarm. And now I'm, I'm thinking he's joking, but no, it turns out he wasn't. There's a wee alarm, like a panic alarm behind me. He says, no, don't, don't press the panic alarm. It's not actually connected up to anything. And um, so that was my introduction to the... But we did often get shoplifters coming in. So they'd come in and I'd be watching them and I'm like, you know, if I've got a task, it's getting done. So I'm watching them like a hawk and you'd see something going in the pocket and I would just roar at the top of my voice, get out of your pocket and get out. And they'd go, oh, oh, sorry, hen, sorry, hen. <laughs> and out come as if I was like some sort of gangster. I'm 13. But I think the best one was there was a group of girls who I knew wearing this time, at this point, you had to be 16 to buy your Mayfair or your Lambert and Butler. And I, I was, I wasn't 16. Are fags 18 now? Oh uh-huh, yeah. Oh. I think it's, you need a mortgage to buy a packet. Oh, my, I bought a packet for my my grandpa the other week. Fifteen pound. I know. It used to be one ninety nine for your ten cigarettes. Wild. Um. So the girls came in, and I'm a bit intimidated by them, um, because they're part of the SYT, which is a shortly young team. I wasn't quite that shortly's. Um. <laughs> so they came in and they says, "Can we have ten Lambert?" It probably was Mayfair, Lambert and Butler were expensive. And they slammed down a £10 note onto the desk. And I know they're no 16, but I am no ID in these girls because no one needs that sort of hassle in their life. So they, they puts the £10 down. They take their, their cigarettes and walks away. And I picks the £10 note up. And it was a photocopy of a £10 <laughs> note. I shit you not, it gets even better. I turns it over and it says, ha ha, you clown, written in the back of it. <laughs> Well, I knew if Big Dom found that out, I'd be getting in the neck for taking this ten pounds. No so way. I like just like scrumpled it up and like put it in. Uh, oh, that's hilarious! I worked in. Uh, I worked in. Do you know what? I'm not going to say the name of it, but I worked in a ch- shop, like a news agent type. But it was a chain. It was like a national chain. R.S. McCall was it? No. Um, fuck it. It was W.H. Smith. Oh, and, did uh, you get a job in there? I know. Well, I worked in uh, Central Station one, and then I worked in Queen Street. And me and my pal used to do this thing. This is why I didn't want to say. First of all, I say that shop was about six hundred pounds up over what they should have had every week. So that's point one. But we, me, me and my pal used to do it, and I'm not going to name them because that would be shit on Gizzy Jordan Gillen. <laughs> um, but we used to like bust a packet of crisps and then go, oh, these are damaged. Like, what will we do with them? And then the boss of that, oh, you put them in the wee bin and then you just sit and eat the crisps. <laughs> I mean, I thought I was getting something really juicy there. No, like, no, you were like, I, feel, I feel really, I, do you know what, I feel a bit a bad about it, then I'm like, so fuck, like we took a packet of hula hoops. So at that point, I think I was also working as a, a waitress and I'm still at school at this point. 
I took um, I took on well with meningitis, viral, oh, viral meningitis. I know the serious one. It was probably just made up meningitis, but yeah, I had viral meningitis. I was off school for about eight weeks. Um, result. And then I know when I went back, I kind of like fallen out the way of studying. I had met who was to become my first husband um, at the age of sixteen. So I kind of became a bit disinterested in school and left. Um, so I think I left with a higher B in biology and that was my only kind of qualification. I loved, my biology teacher was brilliant, she was great. So that was always my good subject. So I was able to set that exam without really doing anything. So you just sat one exam? No, I sat them all, but I failed the rest right. because I didn't really bother my ass. Right. Well, I, I sat some of them, I think. I definitely sat my biology. So that was that was my higher. I had straight ones for my standard grades. Mm. Then kind of shit hit the fan so I left and I actually worked in a chip shop full-time for a year um which I actually really enjoyed yeah I'm right good at wrapping up you know how it's like the wrapping presents Christmas really good at that um so I worked in there full-time I'd go in in the mornings and I'd scrape out the pans and I'd clean the floors and do all that sort of stuff and then I'd go in there at night then I was like right okay Rihanna you're going to need to do something here you can't be working in a chip shop for the rest of your life and I applied to nursing. So my mum was a nurse. Right. My mum was the first person in our family to go to uni. Wow. Um, and she never went until she was older. So I remember my mum going right through uni. So it was back then you could get into nursing with life experience. So I managed to convince them at 17 that I had enough life experience to um, cancel out the fact that my grades were a bit shit. <laughs> and you also got a bursary. So I was like, brilliant. I can get into this one fairly easy can get a bursary, my mum will be able to help me with the uni work, let's do it. So I goes into nursing and it's supposed to be a three year course. I fell pregnant with my first child um, during it and then found out that you got a full year's maternity leave paid. Fucking cha-ching. Living my best life. So there was me, nice. so I got a year off, then I goes back and thought, well, I want to have another kid and you only get six months maternity leave in the hospital, so done another year and then took another year off. I was given into trouble by the uni. They said, we've not had this before. We've not had to pay somebody's maternity leave twice. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I'm going to do what I can when I can. So I goes back. This is another funny story of my life here. So I'd always aced my exams. Mm. And then I goes back. And you with have two to, kids at this point? Yeah, 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 with two kids. So and I get, I'm working in a nursing home at this point as well. Um, and I goes back. You have to, at this point, go in and pick up your exam results. So everybody goes down and you've got to search through the envelopes. So my we weren't married at this time. My my boyfriend at the time, he drops me off and I goes in to get my exam results. So this is for my final exam. So, you know, this is it, you're a nurse. Mm-hmm. And I comes back out, I've opened my envelope and I've only fucking failed the final exam. Oh, Completely no. failed it. And at this point, I've hit the five-year mark and they said, well, you're out with the time limit. So that's it. You can't reset. So I comes out and he's standing outside in the car park with balloons saying congratulations, Nurse, nurse Bell. Oh, fuck. And I'm like, I failed it, I failed it. Um, so I goes home absolutely devastated that I'd failed it and then I had convinced myself I didn't actually want to be a nurse anyway. And I think I'd probably come up with another business idea at this point. Um, but anyway, the uni kind of goes back on itself and says, right, we'll let you sit this exam again. Passes it and goes into my nursing. So that kind of took me... To the age of, so I started that when I was 17, so 18, 19, 20, 20, 
21, 22 when I goes into my nursing, but started my course when I was 17. So you do placements in nursing. So from the age of 17, you know, I'm exposed to a lot. Nurses, student nurses, young ones, like, were exposed to so much. I remember my first placement was in um, a kind of nursing home and we had three deaths. And I remember being 17, like, wrapping up people and doing their last testament. And Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, that just becoming really normal. Um, and going home and not really knowing how to process any of that. And oh, wow. Yeah, that and that's that's it's just normal in nursing. Like uh, death just becomes part of the process. Um, and right through my nursing career, you know, I nursed a twenty-one year old when I was twenty-one who passed away with um, cerebral cancer. Um, so much of the things that you're told are rare and doesn't happen, we are seeing all the time. Mm-hmm. And it actually ended up leaving me with really bad health anxiety. You know, I would then have a headache and it was actually a brain tumor. You know. Yeah all these sort of things. So I'm in nursing, but I'm not particularly enjoying it. It's killing my soul. I just feel like I'm not, I'm not making a difference where the NHS, you you know, it's it's on its knees. Um, and I just felt like I wasn't able to give people the care that they deserve. We didn't have the resources. Everyone was stressed, everyone was under pressure. Every time I was getting out that elevator to go into the wards, you know, a bit of my soul died. I really, really did not enjoy it. There were parts of it that were really fulfilling, but it was it was really impacting my mental health, I think. So, yeah, that was me. If, if that's God, um, that would be so tough. Because if it's not your vo- pure vocation and you're feeling that level of stress and then it's people's literal lives are depending on you. Yeah, I just You're better like off out. For them and for you. A hundred percent. There was so much bu- bureaucracy, is that the right word? In yeah, it? yeah. Um you were going in and you're you're a young girl and you've got stresses at home as it is. And there's so much pressure on you. Management, you know, need more from you, your colleagues, they're stressing under pressure and it just becomes quite a toxic environment sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um and all you want to do is look after your patient and give them you know, as much as you can, but you've got so many patients who all need so much from you. Then if one person was taken on well, you were taken away and you still had to catch up with everything. And I just found all the systems really difficult. I found, um, I, I found the full thing difficult. It was so, yeah, I felt like I was spending more time doing paperwork and I didn't understand why I was to do half of it. It didn't make sense to me that I was doing this paperwork to say that I was doing things that I didn't actually have time to do. Um, and it's just in nursing and in probably a lot, of, a lot of industries, things are done because that's the way they've always been done. And it takes such a long time to implement change, mm-hmm. especially in the NHS. So I'm saying, why are we doing it this way? Why don't we do it that way? Like, this is the new research. These are the new studies. Well, this is the way we've always done it. So we're just going to do it. I mean, I'm not far be it from me to sit and critique how anything is done in the NHS. I don't work there, but it kind of strikes me as being a sort of fuck me. Our work is as hard as hard as it is. Don't make us change anything, eh? Because that's just going to be even harder. Yeah, you feel like you're you feel like you're just fighting a kind of pointless battle. Um, And you know the wage wasn't particularly great. Most nurses um, and auxiliaries, and you know people below a certain level in the NHS, their their wage is enough for them to live or to survive, should I say, yeah. but not particularly thrive. So you've got the strain and pressure of trying to 
live life and do a job that's difficult, challenging, stressful. And I just knew, I just had this feeling in me that I was supposed to be doing something more that I could impact people more in a different way. So actually, the thing that changed everything, I actually had um, an accident on a pedal bike, push bike. Seemed funny at the time. Um, it's probably going to seem funny now as well. Tell us. Yeah, no, it was. So I'm on a date, right? And it's it's. Um, <laughs> it was actually with. So I, I've missed a bit here. So I get married at 23, and I have my two children. So this is to the guy that I met when I was 16, and all I ever wanted was just a family unit. So I moved out the house at 17, um, moved in with him. We had our kids. We got married. Um, and things just, they didn't work out. Things, yeah, without getting into it, um, it just didn't work out. If I can quickly just ask one or two of your questions. Yeah, no, ask away, go for it. So you say you wanted a family unit. Did you not have a family unit in your house? I did. Um, so I had my mum and my dad who, you know, they weren't, they, they split up when I was 17, but for probably, I'd say, 10 years before that, they weren't together effectively. Mm-hmm. And they were so busy trying their hardest to create a life for us. You know, my mum was working um, in a nursing home while I was doing placements at uni and had her own stuff going on mm-hmm. and had her, her own traumas. That that was her focus. And my dad as well was a working man. He worked long shifts. So... A lot of the time, I kind of didn't bring myself up, but I was very independent from a young age. Sounds as if they've probably looked at you and went, she's self-sufficient, she's brand new, leave her to it. Yeah, and they, you know, they tried their best and they gave me so much um, that I wouldn't have got other ways. So, for example, our holidays, I used to be really, really jealous of my friends that would you know, go to Florida or go on a plane or go these sort of places. Do you know, I think that was, to me, that was the epitome of wealth. Yeah, you went to Florida. Florida. And then they would come home and print out their pictures and put them in an album. (laughs) I remember I had this one friend, Abby, we're still friends, and she's got all these big albums of all their family holidays and I used to love looking through her albums. Mm -hmm. So our holidays were camping. And now I don't mean going to like Craig Tarot you know, my dad had friends who were farmers. So Crawford John or um, Led Hills, we would get a tent and we would go literally to fields and my dad would maybe borrow his friend's quad bike and we'd have campfires. And, sounds like, amazing. Proper, but back then I was jealous of the people going to Florida. Yeah. But I have the most amazing memories from mm-hmm. those holidays. You know, I've been now, you know, I've taken my kids to the Bahamas, we've done Florida, we've done all these holidays. And genuinely, the memories that I have, I can guarantee you the memories I have from those types of holidays camping, just don't even compare. So as much as at that point, I was looking at the people that had money and thinking, I wish that was me. They gave me those sort of experiences that, you know. But yeah, the day-to-day living things, I I felt like I was missing something. So I met um, my first husband, we lived together, we we had kids very quick. I was a teenage mum um, because I, I always knew, I just had this thing inside me that I was just desperate to be a mum. What, what, is that circumstantial, like from where you were from or is that just in you? Like, do you think if you grew up in a palace, you would have still wanted to? I think I wanted, I was desperate to feel this unconditional love. 
Wow. When I look back, at that point, that wasn't my thinking. I just yeah. had this thing inside me. You and don't always understand your instinctive no, 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 no. desires, do you? No, but I just wanted to experience that unconditional love, which I'm sure I had from my parents. You know, my parents were, were great parents. Um, but I just, that bond, that connection, that is so my daughter and I actually feel that we've grown up together. Yeah. Um, so she's 14 now and we've got such a, a fun, like funny relationship. Yeah. Because she's grown up with me. She's witnessed my mistakes. She's experienced them with me. So yeah, it's um, it's a unique, it's a unique and valuable upbringing for her. Yeah, she's seen both sides because yeah. she's you know she's lived with me when we have not had electricity and gas because yeah. we didn't have money for it. She's walked around me, walked down Tesco's with me with a calculator, working out. Been there. Yeah, yeah, working out. Do you know, actually, I used to enjoy it. It was like a wee challenge. How many dinners can we get out of this twenty pounds? <laughs> yeah. So she's witnessed that, but now she's. You know, she sees where we are now, so she's seen both sides of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we were together until we got married at 23, my first husband and I. Then we moved into a new house, which was going to make everything better. Da, 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 da. You kind of know the stories. Um, things weren't great. End result was me with the two kids on my own in a situation where I was effectively homeless. How How not great were things that you would end up in that situation yeah pretty grim pretty bad i see you don't i don't want i'm not going to push it that yeah no out of respect for you know it was a long time ago and mm-hmm. um the kids dad's a great dad to them yeah um and out of respect for the kids and him you know it was just when we were young um things just kind of ended up not great I get you. Um, People can maybe take from that and feral what they will. Yeah. But I completely understand your reasons for not divulging too much detail. But yeah. also, I had an, an obligation to ask as we tell the story. Yeah, um, we're in a good place now. You know, good. we co-parent pretty well. Um, he's got an amazing fiancé who's like a second mum to my kids. And I don't think that guys, I think they're always that female that female influence on a child, you know, they're at his house almost half the time. Yeah. And to know that they've got that female influence, that loving there. So, you know, there's so much to be thankful for. That takes a lot of grown up rational thinking because I could understand why, even from an objective perspective, of having absolutely no participation or involvement whatsoever. Although you could go, oh, that's a bit immature, I can completely understand why any parent would be a bit pissed off at the thought of that. But I just think for someone to come in to a child's life who has nothing to do with them yeah. and show them unconditional love, because there has been challenges with, particularly my daughter, she's um, she's had her own challenges and she can be she's been difficult at times. Um, she's the most incredible loving girl. But similar to me, she was diagnosed with neurodiversity um, fairly recently and which had its own challenges. Yeah. And her stepmom like stood by her throughout the entire thing. She mm-hmm. didn't have, sorry. That's all right. Take your time. It's so obviously... for like someone that doesn't need to uh-huh. to yeah. be able to show her that love and support, like Well, that makes complete sense to me. I can see you getting, shall we take a wee second? Yeah. But it's obviously, it's a lot of love and a lot of emotion, so don't feel bad for getting a wee bit um, emotional because I, th- I think there'll probably be people listening that'll be maybe getting a wee bit upset along with you. 
It's just gratitude. Yeah. Um, well, that's that's a great way to look at it and to be like, do you know what? Your kids have got this. They've got other positive influences that care deeply for them. And, and when it comes to that is what really matters, isn't it? And I know like it's great that, you know, they'll go to their dads and they'll be able to moan about me. <laughs> um, like, My mum's done this or said this. And I know like that that's someone there to listen, love and care. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can't ask for anything more as a parent to know that's, that. That's great. That's lovely. So yeah, that was back then. So I find myself in this situation where I'm effectively homeless. I goes into the East Ayrshire homeless office. So my options were, I think for a couple of weeks I stayed in my mum's spare room. So there's the three of us. And there was a single bed, which the two kids were sharing and I was sleeping on my mum's couch. Um, so I goes into East Ayrshire homeless office and they say to me, Rihanna, find the money for a private let. Like where we can put you, you're not going to want to go. You know, talking about homeless unit. Yeah, uh huh. And I think they had houses like they they could put you in for like your safety or whatever. But they they effectively said to me, go and find a deposit. Um, so I did. I managed to find five hundred pounds. Not find it. I mean, I didn't find it. Kicked me <laughs> out. So at this point, I'm a nurse. Like so, yeah. I, but I can only work part time because I don't have childcare for the kids. My mum. I'm able to leave them at my mum's house while I do night shifts. So I'm putting them to beds, I'm going and doing my shift, I'm coming back to hers, getting them ready for school, taking them to school, so I can only work part-time. That would kill anybody. That's a lot, that's You say that, but see when you're in that situation, you just do it, because what else are you going to do? Exactly. Like, there was was no other option, so i just done it. Um, And it didn't feel like a hardship, it just felt like you were like, right, fuck it, this is my situation. Do what you need to do to get through it. Yeah. Um. So I must have whatever I had money from my wage. At this point, I'm picking and choosing what bills I'm paying. So I finds a deposit and finds a flat, and moves into it. And the flat was furnished with stuff off Ayrshire buy and sell, charity shops. I got a couch, my couch and finance. I don't even know how I managed to get the finance for it, but um. We all know how it is when you go in and it's like 0%. I'm probably still paying the couch off the now. <laughs> I'm sure I probably get my direct debits. £40 a month to Harvey's or something. But it was the most free I've ever felt, you know, to know that that was my space. Even if it's from a charity shop or you should buy and sell, the fun me and the kids had, like, you know, upcycling things and painting things. And it was our space. No one could take it away from us, well, except for the landlords. But, um, you know, it was... When I look back, I think, fucking hell, Rihanna, like, how did you, how were you mentally well then? Which was another thing. Yeah. Um, but it didn't feel like that at the time. It just felt like... You got on with it. You got on with it. There's sort of, I mean, those fundamentals of having somewhere to stay, somewhere to sleep some, and things to eat. Yeah. If you can take care of those, you can then start taking care of getting yourself forward. But first, you just need those pillars, don't you? Yeah. So we had we had the house, we had well, the flat... Um, and we had each other, um, and I had just the most amazing, I've got the most amazing circle of friends who, you know, were around every night because my mental health wasn't great at that point. You know, I, there was points where I just didn't, I literally wanted to drive into a tree. I just, life was so exhausting at times. Um, I don't, I, I really see what you're saying that there. Yeah. And we spoke about it in more detail. Yeah. Remember, we were sitting having, were you having a hot chocolate, was it? Pretending it was a coffee? Probably. I ordered <laughs> it before you came so that you didn't think, 
What's this? You need plain hot chocolate? <laughs> well, then you've had an absolute go at me for having sparkling water, so we'll call it. Who drinks sparkling water? Do you know who drinks sparkling water? Sophisticated, cool guys like me. Did you order it to look sophisticated? No, I wish I've not actually drank any of it. Did you just order it to it's gone. look like look, that? It's empty. I'm shaking the bottle here. No, but sorry, not... I don't like to focus too much on these things, right? No, because go for it because I know I know other people feel the same at times, and it's good Aye. to hear people not feel alone because I felt well, so alone it. at that time. And the reason I don't like to focus on it too much, and I'll elaborate upon that by explaining that I just feel, and I've said this a hundred times, so regular listeners will know what I'm on about. Where I'm like, oh, it's just this go-to sort of podcast bingo. So to, and, it, and it loses a lot of sincerity. Yeah. And it loses a lot of meaning. But the reason I wanted to kind of focus on it is to be, to be like, look where you are now, but let's look at the headspace you were in. Yeah. And, and what that means. Because as a throwaway remark, you're like, wow. But if we can actually get further Let into me that. Read you. I didn't read you this one earlier. So, so I've got my wee diary out. I've got, I call it my crazy diary. If I ever lose this and anyone finds it, I am up shit creek. So this is one of the quotes that I wrote when it helped me writing things down because it reminded me that I have these feelings and then I'm okay. Yeah. So this was one of the quotes. Sometimes life is so exhausting. It feels like, what's the point? We live, we die. Then there's this bit in the middle. It just feels so tiring. Why don't we just skip the bit in the middle? But do you know what? We've all felt that way. Yeah. I've had, I've kind of slightly touched upon it the last four or five months. Man, I've had those feelings. Yeah. But I've had them before. And it's not just out of nowhere. I kind of stop and I go, well, what's happening? Yeah. There's actually a lot of disruption. Things are changing. And changing for the better in a lot of sense. But it becomes a point where you're like, fuck, man, this is a slog. Yeah. Like, and I'm tired of feeling tired and I'm tired of feeling sad and and worried and stressed but you kind of have to go well do you know what I've kind of tried to say to myself that is a tax on a good life let's just say you need to pay I know this isn't a percentage but let's just say your earnings you pay 20% or 10% of it is taxed it's gone Yeah. and it's no nice and I think in life as well you sometimes 20% tax? no you know what I mean <laughs> but just what I mean by that is not all it's going to be great and there are going to be these periods where I something that's shite and something that's really difficult and tough and it's not to say that it's not sometimes unbearable but it's like it passes and it gets better and yeah. it's known when you're in the eye of that storm, which is so important that you write that down for you to reflect upon. When you're in the eye of that storm, you're like, well, it does pass. And just like great things don't always stick around, neither do bad things. I think the difference in my mindset now compared to back then, back then I wasn't a victim mindset. It was yeah. poor we me, like, oh, I'm a single mum. Oh, I don't have money. Oh, like, you know, I was focusing on the negatives and our brains are so, so powerful. When we tell our brains something or we repeat something often enough, we start trying to look for the evidence to validate what we're telling our brain. Yeah. So we start attracting that to it. So, you know, we reinforce those feelings. Watch how you speak to yourself. 100%. Speak to yourself kindly. You know, my pal said something really nice to me and it, it got me actually borderline emotional. Where he was like, I had said a couple of things to him and then probably spoke probably badly about myself. And then he was like, if I came to you with even half or one of the things that you've just told me, he's like, you would never speak to me like that. And you would say nothing but nice things and you would support me and make me feel better. And he's like, so you can't do that yourself either. And I was like, wow, fuck, I never thought about it. That's, it seems so obvious, but I, was like, I never thought about it like that. We are literally our, har our harshest critics. Aye. Which can, it can be, a, a, that's a strength and a weakness. And I suppose it's knowing when to put the foot on the gas with that type of thing. 
But God, I mean, so you're in the house, things start getting, what, what was the kind of turning point when you went, right, something, something's changing here? I remember it so vividly, like, so vividly. I remember it was August and it was coming up to the kids going back to school and I couldn't afford to buy them uniforms. Like, I literally didn't have the money. So at this point, I'm getting debt collector's letters because, um, you know, you're picking which bill you to, you can pay. Mm. I was earning too much that I wasn't entitled to certain benefits. You know, I got, like, tax credits, but it didn't go far when you're paying for all these different things and trying to pay for childcare and you're trying to live. Um, and I was like, this, this, I'm meant to live a better life than this. Like, this isn't the life for me. So... I decided, you know, I was off work after at this point because I had had the accident. Oh, so, the bike. <laughs> the bike accident. So I'm on a date and it was quite early on. This was <sighs> the, the guy that I ended up marrying the second time. <laughs> um, and we're in Millport and we're cycling and he ends up distracting a woman in front of him and she falls off her bike. And I then... Distracting goes, her by doing what? He overtook her. All oh, right. And it was like a wee old woman and she got a fright. <laughs> So she comes off her bike. Um, she comes <laughs> off her bike, and then I goes over the top of it. And the honestly, you could not write this. The brakes had been disconnected on my bike. They'd put a picnic basket on it because we're out for a romantic picnic, <laughs> and my brakes wouldn't work. So I'm going down this hill. I goes over the top of her. The bike comes up and whacks me. Was she alright? Well, I jumps up to check on her because obviously I'm a nurse, aren't yeah. I? And as I jumps up, I just absolutely pass out on the oh side, side of the ground. Oh my god. Um, so this must happen raging it was a right good picnic too Um, this must happen all the time because there was a van just driving round picking folk up (laughs) so the guy gets me and this woman on the bikes into the back of the van and drops us off at the hospital so by this point I've got um, a pelvis injury oh my god I was absolutely mortified because they're stripping me down (laughs) like they're literally stripping me down they're talking about putting catheters in bad enough that the guy that I'm on the date with is there the people looking after me are people I know Um, because obviously from the hospital and my mum works in the hospital what hospital was it? So it was one in Millport. So they oh, then right, starts, they got a, a hospital yeah, in Millport. Yeah, they then starts talking about phoning a helicopter. And I'm like, <laughs> get yourself to hell, you're not taking me in a helicopter to Cross House Hospital. And at this point I don't really realise kinda of how bad it is. Oh my god. I'm thinking it's just I end up having to have surgery. Um so anyway, I'm off work long term. And I think I was off about eight weeks. And at this point, this is when this all happens. So I've got time off and this is all hitting me that I just I want a better life. So I Google businesses that nurses can do. <laughs> um, and up comes a course for aesthetics. So mm. at this point, aesthetics isn't a big thing. You're talking what year are we eight, talking nine here? years ago. Right. Um, yeah, when would it have been? Uh, you're talking easily eight, nine years ago. Around about 2013, uh, Eight 14. years ago, eight years ago. Um, what was eight years ago? 2016? Aye, uh, 2016. Fuck. Ugh. Passage of time marches on far too quickly. I know, so when I was six, back when I was six, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and it comes up this course for aesthetics, and it was £2,000. It's a lot like, of money. I, I'm like, at this point, you know, I can't buy that as the smart price trousers for the, mm. for the school. So I was online, and I goes to Tesco, loan thing, and I must have lied in the form because my credit rating was horrendous. Like, so you know how they ask you how much you earn and stuff? Maybe put an extra pound or two on it. Did they just take your word for it? 
Well, I don't know. I don't, still to this day, don't know what happened because I genuinely couldn't have got credit in a Mars bar. But they gave me the £2,000 loan. Oh. Um, which I ended up not even needing because my dad then, weirdly, I tell him about my idea and my dad at first says, don't be so stupid, Rihanna. What if it all goes wrong? You know, this is... My family always just done the same thing. They don't like change. They've yeah. been in the same jobs their entire life. My dad's never left the country. We've lived in the same house. Whereas me... I'm like a nomad, like I'm here, there and everywhere. Yeah. Um. So I talked him into it and he's, I'm waiting on this money coming through. So he loans me the £2,000 until I get the loan. I goes and does this course. Now at this point, my goal is to be able to buy school uniforms and to be able to take my kids once a year to the likes of Craig Tara. So if you are listening, you don't know what Craig Tara is. It's fucking brilliant. It's like a it. Butlins. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a caravan park down near where we stay. So that was, that was genuinely the goal. I thought I'll do a couple of patients at the weekend and that'll be that. So I goes and does the course. It's like a six hour course. It was... Um... Uh, do you know what? Is my face going a wee bit funny or distant now? No. Just as you were speaking, I was lost in a wee second. I'm sorry. I have got the fucking overwhelming urge to go and spend a week in a caravan somewhere. I was just thinking... Would go to Craig Tara? I would love to go to Craig Tara um... and just, just stay in a wee... Stay in a wee caravan and just eat biscuits and watch stuff on the telly. I know, and get the, we done it actually, we went somewhere about six months ago. It wasn't a Craig Tara, but it was it was like that, but in Edinburgh and it was actually really good. Oh, I'd love to do that, sorry. Man, so, that was the worst ever, but I just was in a pure thought of, and then I was like, I could go to the wee thing and I don't drink, really drink pints, but I'll go and drink a pint in the, in the wee bar. Do the bingo? I watch entertainment. That'd be fucking brilliant. If anybody's got a caravan, go and let us borrow it, will you? We'll have a we'll have a week long party. Um, sorry, you go and do the course and the training and stuff. Is it up in Glasgow? Yeah. Oh, up in the big yeah. smoke for a week for a country a, girl. It was a company called Yeah. I know. Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't leave. <laughs> I, I'll I'll fly anywhere in the but see if you ask me to drive to Glasgow. Or, you know, it's it's traumatic. So I goes and trains with um, a guy called Tamar. He's a surgeon up in Glasgow, and Laura Miller, who I just absolutely adore. So I goes with them. And I does at this point it's a day long course. Yeah. The training back then isn't really what it was now, but again, it wasn't a popular thing then. So I comes home straight away and I thought, I'm one of these people. If I'm going to do it, I'm a hundred miles an hour. It's getting done yesterday. Mm-hmm. So I says, I goes home and I says to my mum, Mum, lie up in the bed. She's like, oh, What do you mean? I says, Well, they gave me this filler home with me because I didn't use it all in the course. So I'm going to do your lips, no numbing cream or anything. The poor woman, bless oh, her. Fuck. So she lets me do it. Then I orders a wee doctor's bag off a. Argos right. and then that's my business started wow so I started travelling around people's houses doing their Botox and their fillers now don't judge me that's genuinely was the done thing back yeah. then um, only rich people had clinics <sighs> so yeah it, it spiralled pretty quickly um, the business grew pretty quickly I mean uncouth question but like, how much money were you making to begin with just to get a sense of how much your life so, just felt as yeah, if it's yeah. turned around so you're probably kind of Profit-wise, you were probably making about fifty, sixty pounds a person. How many people a week? To start with, probably about four. That's de- to go yeah, from yeah, up nothing to about eight hundred. No, wait a minute, fifty per. I'm a fucking moron. That's Remember, this quid. is all hypothetical. If HMRC are listening, none. I well, you know what? HMRC prove it. <laughs> um, but to to give you a laugh, what I used to do was I would get a booking. And I would have to take a deposit and I would use that deposit money to drive up to the pharmacy in Glasgow to buy the filler. Wow. So 
filler comes two syringes in one box right. but I couldn't afford a full box right. so the pharmacy used to sell me one syringe at a time <laughs> which is you know I'm now one of the biggest accounts in Scotland um, for Tioxin which is the biggest dermal filler company um, in the UK so you know now we're getting hundreds of boxes at a time whereas I was I, literally buying one syringe let's underline that point you went from being sold almost akin to being sold individual fags yeah, that's what it's like yeah. and get this one syringe they're probably going oh that's a shame we'll sell it and now it, it has grown into that I know it's it's wild when I think about it when I stop and think which I don't do often it's wild mm-hmm. absolutely wild so a new law comes in about a year after me starting saying which is oh you could do a full podcast on this on its own I know we'll, we will touch on some of that and some of the things you said yeah. and what I've seen so the new law came in saying that anyone who was practising aesthetics that was a healthcare professional, so doctor, nurse or dentist, had to take out this new licence, which was two and a half grand back then, and effectively we had to have a clinic. T- to simplify this, right, doctor or nurse, you need to pay for the licence, but me as Joe Smith in the public, mm-hmm. I don't need a licence. Mm-hmm. That makes zero fucking sense. So right now in the aesthetics industry, the only people that are regulated are doctors, nurses and dentists. So That if, makes no sense. So if I practice without the licence, which is £2,500 a year, there's talk about it going up to about £7,000 a year per clinic, um, I'm breaking the law. So but if my postman comes in and yeah. does it, absolutely fine. So in theory, we could be in your clinic in Kilmarnock and it's... If a client comes in, as long as I'm the one that puts the needle in, nobody's breaking the law. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So we are, I should um, be prosecuted, not the person with a license, uh, the, with the well, qualification. People, people assume that you need qualifications and you need a certain level of training to be doing this. Do you, you don't want to teach me how to do that? Literally, you could watch a you could watch a YouTube video and start doing it. Mm-hmm. So people see all these pages offering all these treatments and think, oh, they must be medically trained. They must be this. They must be that. They say they're medically trained. Anyone can say anything online. Yeah. Like it's not protected. It's uh, the industry is wild. Was there no a case? Oh, I mean, this is my wee tabloid segment, but I just ask you for a bit of my juicy stories and all that. But so we saw a case one that you'd sent me. It was an STV News, I think. And it was like a woman had gone for it and it looked as if she'd had a stroke because yep. it was done improperly. I mean, do you ever get people, I'm jumping away ahead by the way, but do you ever get people coming to you and it's been what what the fucking daily record would call botched surgery? A hundred percent. And here's the thing, it can go wrong no matter who does it. Yeah. I've had instances where I've caused complications, but I then deal with those complications. I treat the patient. The patient gets 100% care regardless of whether they've just been injected by me or if it's three years later. Mm-hmm. What that I find happens um, for non-medical public members who start injecting, they don't know how to deal with these complications. Yeah. And they end up, you know, I've had people come into my clinic who have been blocked by their practitioner and the NHS don't know how to deal with blocked a lot of it. Blocked as in blocked via con- from contacting them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blocked. Oh, Jesus really Christ. Blocked, um, or just given really misleading, wrong information. You can blind people with these products. You can cause serious, serious damage. And the government are ignoring it. They are fully aware this is happening. Like right now, I've spent over £100,000 on a new medical laser machine for the clinic. Wow. Uh, got in touch with Health Improvement Scotland to let them know we've got this new machine. 
okay, so if you want to use it, you now have to install a new ventilation system in your clinic. Until then, you aren't allowed to use it. So the ventilation system, the quote was £15,000. And when we looked into the research as to why they're saying we need this, it's to keep the patient's temperature comfortable. We live in Scotland. Ah, so we have to spend £15,000 on this equipment to be able to carry out the procedure. We have another practitioner in the clinic who's a paramedic. So she's not included in Health Improvement Scotland. She can use my machine in my clinic. My postman can use my machine in my clinic. But me, who has undergone extensive training, who has thousands of hours worth experience in this industry, isn't legally allowed to use it in case the patient's temperature isn't comfortable. That's ridiculous, isn't it? It's just, and it's also a barrier to uh, wealth generation. Let's be honest. It is. Not to be all fucking Margaret Thatcher, 1987, but it's just a barrier to wealth generation for for what purpose or what benefit? It makes no sense. Practitioners are having to close down their clinics. They can't afford to mm. maintain what Health Improvement Scotland are asking for. Meanwhile, there are people... Gen- I'm not even making this up. There are people carrying out these procedures in camper vans. <laughs> and that's absolutely fine. What... <sighs> I, I I did skip away ahead, right? So I'll come back to those questions. But how how do you go? At what point do you go? Bloody hell! By the way, I'm turning over such a profit. I should open a place. So we didn't actually at all. So I keep saying we. Um, it's just you, isn't it? It was just me until this point. So I'm like, oh shit, we're gonna have to open a clinic, and how the hell am I going to fund this? I can't even pay my bills. Um. So there's another girl who. I went through university with who's doing the same thing and I reaches out to her so um, her name's Madison she um, is still a big part of my business she I reaches out to her and I say to her look have you seen these new regulations do you want to go in together and go halfers and get her license she's like yeah great idea let's do that so we then think, right, how are we getting the money together? So we apply to Prince's Trust so we basically, it's like Dragon's Den so we have to go in um, to a panel of like five older guys, like we've all got white hair. Um, one of them being a guy called Walter who was recently knighted. He's he was an absolute saint. But these like five guys are sitting across the table from us, two young girls, telling them that we want to um, botox people and put filler in their faces. And, and you know they're hot. They're looking at us like, are you all right? Hey, what the the hell guy are you actually about? says, are you allowed to do this? <laughs> So obviously then when I shows them the business plan, you know, they were quite impressed and they, they gave us the grant. So they gave us £7,000, which we had to pay back, but um, that was what opened our first clinic. So £7,000, we got a rental. Um, obviously the budget was a bit tight. So things like a reception desk were made out of like MDF wood that had been left behind in the shop. You know, everything was just flung together. Um, but we were the first HIS, regu- HIS regulated clinic in Ayrshire. We were one of the very first to regulate. And the business just spiralled at this point. Um, I was still working in the NHS. I was working in the stroke unit. And luckily I had an extremely supportive um, manager who allowed me to reduce my hours down at the same time as the business was growing. Mm-hmm. They were always like, really proud of what we were doing. Um, so supported us. And it just got to the stage where eventually I was only working one shift a month in the NHS and the, the business was just growing and growing and growing. Um, and it just, I still, even now, I still, it still doesn't feel real sometimes. Yeah. 
probably, I mean, if you're looking for where you've come from and what is a relatively short space of time. Yeah. It's unbelievable, but it didn't happen by accident. How much do you think, and part of this question is related to something I'm doing tonight on uh, BBC Radio 5 Live, we're yeah. looking back at 2011. Yeah. It's a thing called the yearbook, right? We spend that an hour talking about news, sport, politics, culture, uh, music, and you have like a sort of a pre-production chat and it's like, oh, what do you remember from 2011? And I was like, I think we should talk about the only way is Essex. And they were about like, <laughs> what? And I said, I think it's had this, that was when that show started and when it really exploded. It was late 2010, but it was 2011 when it became massive. Yeah. And I felt that it completely shaped a huge part of the concepts, the celebrities, we know it influencer marketing and social media the way of reality tv and the proliferation of that and the way that you every show became a towy type thing a sort of scripted reality look at Jordan Shore made in Chelsea or these and the impact even to this day because like I always say towy walks so that Love Island could run yeah and my question after that mad long explanation, but this is just to explain what I meant by that. How much do you think those shows and their impact in culture helped benefit your business type? The celebrity and influencer culture initially, hugely, massively. Mm -hmm. um, then we started seeing the negative aspects of it. People weren't able to establish that what we were seeing on these shows were highlight reels yeah um, and were often exaggerated realities and compared their own lives compared their how they looked their appearance they were comparing everything to these shows which we all know aren't that factual aren't that real yeah. and there's a full dark side to it that's never exposed took us ages to realize that mm -hmm. though didn't it even now you know we don't get as many younger girls in where you know, I'm quite firm with who I will and who I won't treat. Yeah. Um, I had girls even still recently coming in and showing me pictures of hugely photoshopped and filtered influencers. I want to look like this, mm. and they can't. They can't see that that's not how that person actually even looks. Yeah. It's it's sad at times, and which is why on my social media I try and keep it as real as possible, even with my own life and the ups and downs, because I started realizing people were coming into clinic. And they were watching what I was doing. And I don't know how you do it all, Rihanna. Like, I don't know how, you know, you've got to where you've got to. Like, your life looks amazing, all these things. But I was only sharing with them the highlights. And it was actually having a negative impact on people around me because yeah. they weren't seeing the real, you know, the real struggles that I was having as well. And it was making them feel like they were doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Do you know, I find that really interesting, see that whole highlights reel thing, and I've spoken about it before, and it's, it's important to be conscious of that, and I always try and flip that round and say to the people, don't fucking beat yourself up for sharing your highlight reel. For oh, absolutely. Because, you know, for example, it's the online sphere and all that, and, and existing through online and social media, it's still relatively new as a species, never mind even for our generation, and I always think to myself, well, pretend social media is not a thing, if you're going to meet your pals for coffee, do you walk in and go, oh, I went away at the weekend and yeah, I got this wee thing. You don't walk in and go, oh, fuck, this is happening. That's not yeah. all the time. So even I see people going, hey, guys, I think it's good, but it's, hey, guys, welcome to my channel. Just want to keep it real with you and tell you, you know, life ain't all sunshine and rainbows and tell you all the bad stuff. I can't wee bit of me wants to go that. Save it. Save I get it. that, but there are genuinely people who 
watch like you're you're quite switched on i'm not saying that people no i get don't you aren't, but some people that maybe haven't been seen as much as you have genuinely believe that the highlight reels are someone's full life that, yeah no i know that they don't have the difficult time it times. definitely has its impact it really does have its impact and i think it is it's it's ethical and it's conscientious of you to get to paint the full picture especially i suppose with the type of service that you're offering yeah um especially when people are coming in with all these pictures of people and it's not real. No, it's not real. That it's fucking not. Kylie Jenner doesn't look like that. So how are you? Ex- how are you meant to look like that? Of course they don't. Like a Kendall Jenner, a Kim Kardashian, none of them look like that. So it's impossible for you to look like her when she doesn't look like her. And it's again, it's really going down to well, why do you want to look like someone else? Like what is it? And it's when you start having those conversations that deeper stuff comes out. Oh, I, I found this really fascinating, and I was gripped immediately by it. What you said when people come to you and they're coming for treatment it's not just that they dislike the lines in their face no it's very very rarely that we what i see a lot of is women it's mainly women we see we do have some male patients and i definitely think that's going you to had grow a handsome male patient in this morning. we did have a handsome male patient in this just morning. before i arrived <laughs> <laughs> um more and more of what i'm seeing is women that are going through transitions in their life yeah. albeit divorces big birthdays um menopause perimenopause they're coming out the other side of motherhood these sort of big transitions where there's a lot going on in their life there's a lot of turmoil there's a lot of changes and they come in thinking that spending all this money um is going to make them feel better and that these injectable treatments are going to change how they feel and actually it's not you know they're coming in pointed lines I feel really depressed, this is really affecting me, my confidence is in my boots. But actually when we start having those conversations and opening up why they feel like that, often, you know, we've got floods of tears and we start getting into the deeper stuff. And I'll, you know, I work closely with other services, including um, a confidence coach. So I'll often say, okay, right, we'll do this treatment today. However, I want you to go and have a chat with such and such. Um, so it's Lorna that I'll send them to, who I've used personally. Um, Go and have a chat with her. Have a wee think about how you're feeling and then come back to me and we'll t- talk about this again because I can guarantee you these people coming in, especially if they don't particularly have the money, you know, they're maybe putting a credit card, they're a thousand pounds down, they think they're suddenly going to feel better and they don't and mm-hmm. they're just, they've spent a thousand pounds. It's just not ethical at all. I mean, that's, I think that's that's absolutely brilliant. I, nobody would blame you, especially from the position you've come from. They've gone like, no worries, women want service, I provide service, I get the money, everybody's happy to kind of recognise that there's something beyond that. I mean, I assume that's why you will gain clients and then retain clients. Yeah, my client retention is huge, it's massive. And my clients will always say, Rihanna, we trust you, we know you're not going to do something that we don't need, or we know you're going to tell me no. You know, we joke and laugh in the clinic. I've got a filler ban list. If you come into me and you're asking for treatments that I don't feel like you need or that aren't going to benefit you, yeah, you get put on the ban list. That's, do you know, that reminds me a lot of Dr. Connor uh, at House of Dentistry as well. Those and guys are great. They're, they're the best. I they're, love their him vibe. and Adam are just the best. But Connor, we, we've spoken about it a couple of times, and Adam's the same. And they're like, if somebody comes in wanting something, of course the clients and Charles are not going to go like, no, you're never getting this. But what they will say is, that's not right. I can't yep. do that for you. 
and in your best interest, it would be so easy for them. I bet they'd enjoy an extra couple of holidays a year if of they course. were to take it. But they're like, no. And, and for you to do that, you've obviously got a kind of similar sort of approach where the the aim is not to make money per se. The aim is to make people feel better. I get so much out of that you know for, it's, it's quite selfish in a way when we do the transformations and if you look at my Instagram you'll see some of the patient's reactions the feeling that I get when I hand that mirror over and you just see their face light up you see the confidence increasing yeah. I get more from that than the patient ever does mm-hmm. and my patients are with me for you know we say it's lifelong they're coming to me over and over and over again and I had one woman in particular who sticks with me who came in slumped over her head was down her hands under the mirror she could barely look in the mirror without her eyes welling up and we just took it slowly treatment by treatment and she came in and you know our shoulders are back our makeup's done our hair's done and she's telling me Rihanna I'm attracting such I'm attracting better people into my life because Mm. I, I, I have confidence in myself I love myself I'm not putting up with stuff that I would put up with before. It's truly life-changing if it's done in the right way. What are the aspirations? Well, nowhere near done talking about business, but what are the aspirations sort of clinic-wise? So for me, I'm about to start an intuitive psychology diploma and I really want to create a new consultation and treatment method where we are combining um, the psychology aspects of it where I'm able to give patients quick tools to use as to how to overcome their barriers and issues with their self-belief along with the treatment aspect of it. Um, I really want to turn the industry on its heads where we are really genuinely, we all say we treat patients holistically but do we? Probably not because I'm unearthing quite a lot of these these deeper issues with patients, but I don't have the toolkit to help them. So I'm going through that diploma just now and I want to then roll that out into the industry. So just now I work with a few brands um, and I speak at conferences and different events. Um, you need more detail on that because you don't just speak at conferences and events, you go around the world doing these. Yeah, well, not quite the world yet. Um, Europe have been... Oh, have well. been All right, just the one continent. <laughs> <laughs> I think, see, because obviously um, it is me and the kids. I only really have long weekends to, to do my gallivanting, so... Mm-hmm. Um, where have I been? So recently I was in Barcelona. We don't um, look kind of too painful for me to talk about. Move oh, on. It was, it was awful. It was terrible. Too um, painful. We've done Monaco a couple of times. I'm going back to Monaco next month to a conference. I'm not speaking at this one. That's a shame. Um, it must be terrible. I know. I'm going to Italy. Oh. And Barcelona again next month. Um, I'm blocking you while you're Switzerland. there. Like, <laughs> Switzerland. I'm coming over to the PA. Um, yeah, so I get to do a lot of travelling, which it just blows my mind. I remember the first time I was ever asked to go on one of these trips. So they're always paid for by, um, they're sponsored by companies. Um, and the first time they asked me, it was as if like I was doing them a favour by going. They were like, um, can you check your diary and let us know if you're free to come to, I can't remember the I think the first one was Milan. And I remember being like, what do you mean check my diary? Of course I'm free. Like, <laughs> um, and I was just astounded that some people would, you know, it's, it's often doctors and surgeons and things that are on these trips, you know. Yeah. As a nurse, um, it's it's the level that the clinics are at and the businesses are at, it, it, it does tend to be doctors and surgeons who are generally on these trips and I'm kind of like the little nurse in the, the background. So... It was just, it baffled my brain that people 
were asking me and paying for me to go and do these things um, and I was getting all these experiences out of it it's, so I want to really take that message and empower um, other practitioners um, to help them coach their patients through mm. um, these issues that they're having at the same time as treating the physical aspects. It would be really easy to scoff and be derisive about this notion but you will actually be essentially improving society because it's not just you if it's going out to everybody then it's everybody benefits for that it might be minuscule but it's still a benefit I don't think it will be minuscule I think no, it'll be I, on a large scale like I 100% know that I'll be speaking worldwide about this I've got I have such a vision and such a passion for it and I know how industry and life-changing this can be um Right now, I do a bit of coaching and teaching in the industry, but I know I can bring so much more to it. I yeah. just, I need, um, right now I teach business to other clinic owners um, and I help them on a kind of consultancy basis and a coaching basis, but I really want to bring this brand new concept in where we're doing a real combination of practical tools to help people with their limiting beliefs and their confidence at the same time. So It's actually such a valid and and legitimate point that somebody going to into a clinic ready to pay because it's not let's be honest let's be up front it's no pennies it's no no no, no, no. it's not a fiver for no. a treatment and that therefore requires for, for them to part with that money and to go through the process is like aye there's something and in, internally is fundamentally off honestly like easily 90-95% of my patients it's you know they're aging but they still feel 21 inside and mm-hmm. they, they they can't recognize what they're seeing in the mirror yeah. um and they're not comfortable with it they they've lost the the ability to love themselves for who they are mm. i do absolutely have some people who just enjoy the way it looks and they're really you know one of my patients yesterday i always ask my patients to describe themselves in three words in their consultation form before they come in and she was like sassy sexy confident and <laughs> i just love that yeah she just likes having fuller lips which is yeah, brilliant great thing but 95% of my patients will write old, saggy, haggard. And I've got 35-year-old girls writing these words. Fuck's sake. And I'm going out and looking at them in, in the clinic. So I also ask them to score how they're feeling confidence-wise out of 10. And they'll write one out of 10. And there's like a stunning woman who I see with smile lines because she obviously is so happy and laughs all the time and they really suit her face and you know to me I'm seeing these women and they just don't see what other people see Mm. and I can't change that just with I can't do it with the physical injectables it has to be a two-pronged approach yeah I can help soften the things you're seeing and that you don't like but I need to be able to help you do the inner work at the same time like a pioneer of your industry yeah, well, you're speaking. We mentioned a handsome uh, patient that was in this morning. In case you didn't work out, that handsome patient was me. I thought it was great. I mean, I'm happy to say what we. Well, you can explain what we did. Yeah, so we um, we done hydrofacial on you this morning. So hydrofacial was like a seven step facial where we extract everything out your skin and rehydrate it. You said you wanted your skin to be glowy. Yes. Um, and then we done some Botox on you, which. At first, I was like, ah, oh, take it, you want a bit of movement, but you're like, no, freeze me. Just um, to get the lines away. Do you know, there may be people like, what, you get that done? Listen, age comes as the old man, and I think prevention is key. It absolutely is. I think it? I look quite young, though. Yeah, I don't think you, I look What age are you, 41? <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, right, <clears throat> that's us done. Well, I'm 33. 
it, it's very, it is a preventative thing and, mm -hmm. you know, it isn't an age thing either. I'll get some 18 year old girls coming in who have a very expressive face and have static lines. Static lines are lines that are there all the time, even yeah. at rest. Oh, I had loads of those. Botox doesn't fix them. It just softens them. Once the line is there, the line is pretty much there. Yeah. I have some 40, 50-year-old women coming in with no lines on their heads who don't need Botox. It's a very individual thing. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the place was lovely. Like, actually, you. in terms of being in it, you go in, it said warm, it smells nice, everybody's friendly. I'm not, um, I want to buy my own building. That is my big goal for this year. Um, so I rent that building just now. And to have it the way I want it, I want to be able to do the full shebang in it. Yeah. So. Do you know, we should actually reference the upstairs. Um, and, and that, because that's a fantastic idea and it's just a really nice thing to do. The prom shop? Yeah. So, yeah, I had a patient in last week who was a bit stressed about taking her daughter prom dress shopping and I remember it being the same for my mum. I remember her having to pay for my prom dress in instalments, which when I think back, what a selfish wee cow I was. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I said, do the schools, like, I'm sure I've seen the schools do, like, pop-up shops for, like, second-hand dresses. And she made a really valid point. Who wants to go to their school, into the cupboard, like to pick out a dress that maybe the girl in the year above you's worn? Which gave me an idea, and I love a good idea. So what we've done is we've got what I'm going to be turning into a training academy up the stairs, which we're going to turn into a prom dress shop. So everyone that donates a prom dress to us gets a £50 off a hydrofacial voucher, so off the treatment you had this morning. By the way, it was... My skin looked really nice, didn't it, after it? But see this stuff. Are you going to show out. everyone? Are you going to? Yeah, well, I took a wee video. I've been told it wasn't the worst. It wasn't bad at all. I have a fucking. I use toner on my. I cleanse. No, I, I can tell you wash your face I, at least I, once a week. I, <laughs> 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 Only when, it, when it's raining, I'm like, fuck it, I'm wet. Yeah, and it's always like yeah. some soap in. Um, but I mean, I would consider myself to have very clean skin and I was like oh my god with yeah. the stuff that came it's out sometimes quite shocking uh, so yeah if you bring us a prom dress you'll get a 50 pounds voucher and the theory is it's going to be like an actual shop um we've got we're getting people that are donating as rails um we're going to make it all really nice so it's like a shopping experience yeah. and anyone can book an appointment to come so you're booking an appointment so that it's private you're not going to bump into your friends when you're there um, come in, bring your mum, bring whoever you want, try the dresses on, you know, pick whatever dress you want, shoes, whatever you need. We've also got Torn, um, she's got TRG Studios, she's um, quite up and coming in the makeup industry, she does a lot of master classes, who I think is going to do a special tutorial on prom makeup. Um, so it's going to be a real experience and it's going to be completely free. Um, to make sure that people aren't missing their proms because they can't afford a dress or yeah so if anyone's got any prom dresses at home that they is gathering dust bring them down to us honestly it's so lovely do you know I, I see there are a lot of similarities with you and my mum in terms of like life and timeline and all that and she did the exact same thing and I think she still does oh, she? for a prom but she does it with so she I wouldn't say the name of the school for obvious reasons but they set up the rails and they can make it like a shopping experience Brilliant. where you can come in and it's do you know what man it's it's a really kind thing to do that takes work and time and effort but what you're giving people it's what sense of dignity for a start and not being like oh you, oh you come in you get something for free then it's like getting to have that experience and you never know 
the lasting impacts that could have on people. 100%. They might be inspired to do similar for others. It might make them think better of themselves or have a better self-image and go on to do more. Do you know what I mean? It's it's elevating people. Yeah, this is my absolute mission. Like Everything I'm doing just now in the business, etc., for me, this is a tool that's going to enable me to do my passion projects, which is to really people that were in my situation. So the 23-year-old Rihanna who was on her arse, who didn't have self-belief, who didn't ever believe I'd be able to do what I've done. For kids who, you know, are outside the box thinkers that don't particularly think, you know, fit in at school, they're getting kicked out of classes all the time and they're made to believe that, you know, they don't, they're not doing what they should be doing and they're not, they're never going to make it or they're going to be a failure. I really want to be able to change these people's train of thoughts and Mm. I want them to be like, fuck it, I will absolutely be fine. This is what I'm going to do. Watch me do it. Yeah. God, I don't like to say this because it seems so, like I said earlier, it seems so patronising that, but you're a really inspiring person. There's a lot of inspiration to be taken from it and even... I don't particularly intend to work in aesthetics, although I feel like I fucking should. With the money that can be made and the invites you can get to places. I'm not being funny, but you are whining like a baby. That's breaching patient <laughs> uh, client, uh, patient practitioner confidentiality. I wasn't, it was, I mean, it actually wasn't so, but I just don't like the thought of feeling needles. But hearing that whole timeline condensed, and I want you to recondense it and tell me just in this happened and that happened and that happened, yeah. so we can condense it for to kind of break it down but hearing that condense I'm like anything is possible 100% that's how you make me feel and I like I didn't believe that up until very recently I still had limiting beliefs I still yeah. believed that you know I've got the clinic and it does good um, but I had a huge realisation last year actually um, kind of after the breakdown of my second marriage I'm really good at marriage clearly <laughs> um, I had this realisation that the Rihanna the 23 year old Rihanna thought she would be immensely happy and she would be winning at life and life would be amazing if she didn't have financial strains and she had the house and she had all the things. Now, last year, um, my husband and I built a house, you know, seven bedrooms, seven bathrooms, a big, beautiful house. Now, I don't say that to show off. I, just to give context, I was driving the dream car, you know, I'd hit financial goals I was the Rihanna that 23-year-old Rihanna thought would be amazing and I still felt empty inside. I still I still felt exactly the same. If not, I actually probably felt more at ease being the 23-year-old Rihanna because I had this sudden realisation that I had done everything that I wanted to do and that I thought would make me happy and I wasn't. And it made me realise I didn't know what brought me happiness and I didn't actually know who Rihanna was, which was huge. That was a huge point for me last year. Who is she and what brings her happiness? Yeah, which is what I've been working on. Can you answer that? Yeah, so for so long, I had been, um, how do I word it? I had been to you, I would be Rihanna, who I thought Sean would want to see. I just morphed into the person that I thought the person in front of me needed me to be because I didn't love myself. And it's I'd, like the opposite of that, your vibe attracts your tribe type concept, well, isn't it? I don't know if you've seen it, but I wrote a poem after I went to an event recently um, called That Girl. And it's all about how 
it depends who you're around, it depends how you're portrayed. So one person might see you as too loud and too full on and her head's in the clouds and then the other person might see you as really inspirational and full of life and full of energy. And I was always trying to dampen down who I was for fear of, you know, being too loud or being that person or people thinking I, I thought I'd be, I was better than them or people thinking that was bragging. So I always quieted myself down and made myself smaller. Mm. And... Recently, I've just became. I've I just I've learned how to love who I actually am as a person and be authentically me. Mm-hmm. And if people don't like that, you know that issue lies with them, and they're just not meant to be around me, which is fine. Um, so being that person has made me realise that I can literally, I can change people's lives. I know I can, and I know that my story, my drive, my ambition, what I can give to people will change their lives and I'll just want to take that out as a really big message to people that were maybe in my situation or people that just feel they're meant for more but don't know how to take those steps yeah you know often that type of thing can be an egotism exercise I want to tell my story so I can inspire and you're like right stop right there fucking fair play everyone respect it but no you don't you want a slap a pat on the back when there's nothing wrong with it yeah there's actually nothing wrong with it but please don't package it as I think it's putting yourself out there it kind of yeah. opens you up to criticism sometimes doesn't it and opens you up to judgment and through my entire life people have judged me at times and people have been very open about their criticisms towards me whether it be family, friends, teachers at school, strangers, you know, I've heard strangers that have never met me in their life, you know, tell stories about me that I've, you know, it's, it can, really it does, and I just wasn't sure that I was ready, like, to embrace that, but, I, I don't, I, I don't enjoy that, but it's kind of like, well, do you know what, they're going to fucking do it anyway, I know, so. and it gives someone else peace, I suppose, doesn't it, yeah. but if my, hearing my story can inspire one person to, or motivate them to create changes in their own life and take ownership of their own trauma and to learn how to deal with it. And do you know what? Just think, fuck it, I'm going to try that and see what happens. You know, yeah. this might completely change my life because look what it done for that girl. Just uh, believing yeah. in herself. You absolutely are like a, like a roadmap for people that are feeling a wee bit lost. And like I say, you might not be getting into aesthetics, but I think just the general concept of all that happened. And it's not as if you're sitting there saying like, well, I was totally stoic and no matter what happened, I mean, there's passages in that wee diary where you're like, whoa, wow. Yeah. And you mentioned about wanting to drive into a tree and, and that is a sign of, like, you were low. It's not as if you're like this pure robot. Lost. I was yeah. completely lost. I felt so alone. I felt so lost. I felt like my life was never going to get better. But now I'm so grateful for the things that I have been through. And I... I 100% you're going to think I'm crazy saying this I look forward to failing like I get excited about failure because if I fail at something I get wisdom from it I learn from it I take something that I can implement into my next try there's not a single success story in the history of existence that isn't built from the rubble of failure yeah I mean this isn't my first business I've had do you want to hear one of my funniest ones I decided I was going to be a window cleaner <laughs> that was, genuinely I was going to clean the inside of windows because no one else done that ah, yeah. so I went and bought myself a wee window cleaning kit and I started my window cleaning business it turned out I was really shit at cleaning windows but you're a entrepreneurial at, at, like, at your absolute core 
Napoleon Hill, or maybe Andrew Carnegie, but I think Napoleon Hill, author I think in Grow Rich, said, and I've said this a few times, that every failure, setback and disappointment carries within it the seed of an equal or greater benefit. And if you can 100%. look at it that way and say, well, die, that was shite, but failure is only failure and only final if you decide it is so. Yeah, I don't think there is such a thing as failure. There's not. I don't. There's only a thing as giving up. Um, and one of the one of the benefits, like when I'm coaching people, when I'm coaching people in my business, I'm not coaching them from an aspect of I've done so well, like, you know, use what I've done. Oh, exactly. It's very much it's here's where I fucked up. Here's how not to do that and how to avoid that. Yeah. Here's a shortcut to the lessons Absolutely. that I've learned. And that's where the authenticity within everything you do and say is is so visible. Um, you had mentioned about the sort of business in a box type thing. Yeah, Are so you willing to talk the, about that? Yeah, yeah, let's go for it. This is the big plan. This is the big idea. So what I've found just through talking to people and the people that I've met and researching, you know, is that people learning, especially with in the aesthetics industry, I went and learned how to do aesthetics. I'm a medic. I had no clue about business. I couldn't even tell you what a limited company was. I had no business experience. So business in a box, the idea behind it is we have different pillars in business. So for me, you've got business strategy, you've got your skill set, but you've also got wellness. So who are you? What motivates you? Like, why is it you're actually doing this? What limiting beliefs have you got? What things can we implement to help you success, be a, a success? So the initial idea was to do it within the aesthetics industry. But where I want to make the change is once I've made enough money from all of that, the business in a box... The idea is people who wouldn't normally have access to these sort of things. So, you know, your single mum who's struggling or your, your young boy who's just left school and doesn't know what he wants to do, but maybe has a passion for something specific. For example, valeting cars or, you know, dog grooming or barbering or, you know, being a skin technician. So business in a box is where we plan to teach those skills at the same time as a business strategy course and a wellness course, so all three aspects, we're literally giving these people everything they need to succeed in business. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there'll be accountants um, that are going to give support. There's um, business marketing. There's, you know, even a nanny service for people who maybe can't get childcare to come in and do the hands-on stuff. One of your barriers at one point. hundred percent, you know. The kids used to come with me and sit, they would sit and do their homework through the back of the clinic because I didn't have anyone to look yeah. after them. Um, so basically trying to take barriers away from people that would be really successful in business, mm -hmm. that just don't believe, A, that business is for someone like them. Because I used to believe business was only for rich people um, or people who could go and present in front of investors. Yeah. I didn't think it was for someone like me from Short Lees who didn't have any of that. So I really want to be able to give people the belief, the support, the practical skill set, along with the other aspects of it, to help them be successful in business. I mean, there are pe if there are people from the Scottish government listening, because I know you do, because you've told me, the same goes for investors and people <laughs> money to spend. I know you're listening because you've told me, I wouldn't be sleeping on this. Are we getting involved? Yeah. Whether your aim is to make money for yourself and to, to grow your capital injection or whether it's to 
benefit the country as per your ministerial roles. I would be I would be looking further into this. Yeah, because there's so much funding available for these sort of things, but yeah. people don't know how to access That's it. it. Um, and and the thought of them sitting filling out three and four pages. Now I've got dyslexia. You know, hand me a a letter or something to fill out. It's going to the bottom of a pile. You know, these people. There's so many barriers, so many simple barriers that we can take away and really give them a chance to improve their life and break the cycle. Yeah. Really break that cycle. Well, that's what you've done in, in so many ways. I mean, this might seem like a bit of a ridiculous exercise and you might even cringe a wee bit at it. But talk me through it, right? Imagine you had to give me a wee one minute of from 13 or 12 doing your wee paper round uh, through to now. How would, how would you tell that story and, and keep in the peaks and the troughs? Because then I've got a few questions for you once you've given me that timeline. So, 12, God, I was probably making the most money in my, anyone in my, my school at that <laughs> point. And I just thought it was great. But I also had my, my own way to, you know, fund myself and give myself a bit of fulfillment. So, yeah, started off working, knew that I had to work to get anywhere. If I wanted something, I had to work for it, which I don't think is a bad thing. No. And I think it's what's missing from a lot of this generation. Um then I upgraded to my next job and my next job again, the full time learning lessons, learning how to communicate with different people, becoming empathetic towards people who were, were in different situations from me, going through school, realising school wasn't particularly for me and that I was constantly being told, you know, don't do this, don't do that, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. Always having limiting beliefs put on me to, you know, going into marriage and experience and the highs and lows of relationships and you know the breakdown of it and really then hitting that lowest point in my life where I was homeless I couldn't provide for my children I, I just couldn't provide for them and that was a really really hard time and then realizing I was playing victim right this is your situation Rihanna what the fuck are you going to do about it no one's come to save you so what are you going to do move forward to starting the business, everything growing, 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 but never actually stopping and thinking, why am I doing this? What is my goal? Almost missing the journey to get to the goal, which turned out the goal didn't actually mean anything. Um, to where I'm at now, so probably the last six months is where I've really, really been able to appreciate what I've been able to achieve and realise that I've got a lot to give to other people around about me and to give to people that, are in situations where they don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. They don't see or they don't have the belief or the love for themselves to think that they're able to achieve anything other than what they're told they can achieve. Mm. I could have probably saved us a quite good bit of time if you did this thing with that because you, you got it all perfectly. I'm hoping that throughout this conversation we've managed to clearly paint the image and picture of where you were from and where you were and, and where you are now. I think my sign-off will be, first of all, thanks for for having me on your lovely sh literal show home. It's an actual show home. I know, it was a cheat's way out though. So, I mean, thanks for having me. From my Sam Pellegrino and my soup, I really appreciate it. And I mean, my final word is after listening to all this, the key takeaway I've taken, if I had to summarise it in a sentence, would be you're a perfect example of a, a really hardworking, determined and a genuinely inspirational person and a great example of how good hearts always win in the end so long as you never lose sight of the light at the end of the tunnel That's it. and on that note thank you thank you and thank you for listening as always and we'll be back next week with another episode of Blethered cheers you give me